Hello and welcome to The Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're going to learn about how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you're interested in consumer-facing startups, thinking of starting a B2C startup or have your own B2C startup, or interested in venture capital, you've come to the right place. Feel free to also follow us behind the scenes on Twitter at Mike Gelb and for show updates at ConsumerVC. Our guest today is Amit Mukherjee. Amit is a partner at New Enterprise Associates, also known as NEA, one of the premier and global venture capital firms and invests in all stages. Amit focuses on investing in consumer technology. He is the board observer for Casper, Masterclass, Brandless, and the Players' Tribune, and was previously a board observer for Jet.com. Amit has led a number of seed stage investments for NEA, including Aquabyte, Cake, Holloway, Yumi, and Pump Up. It was an absolute pleasure having Amit, and I cannot wait for you all to listen to this one. So without further ado, here's Amit. Well, Amit, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. What attracted you to head into venture capital and specialize in consumer? I think that uh, there's like two elements to that. Um, the first is, you know, growing up in the heart of Silicon Valley, born in Stanford, grew up in Mountain View, uh, and I'm the son of uh, two immigrants. Um, and my, my father uh, worked in a variety of tech companies growing up, and um, basically all of our uh, all of our family's friends worked in tech as well. And so I was just constantly hearing about these companies and how they're doing and just what, what people talked about in their free time, a, a lot like uh, right now when we, we talk about work and what's going on with different tech companies when we're at a bar or at dinner and whatnot. And so I always just assumed that I would end up in, in the technology field uh, in some way. And being in Silicon Valley, I was exposed to the different elements of it uh, much earlier than other people were, and I really I feel very privileged um, um, because of the, because of that. Um, and so I uh, just kind of came across a video of John Doerr from Kleiner Perkins when I was 18 years old, talking about the world and the future, and I was just so inspired. I sort of said, "Hey, let me try to figure out a way to do this as uh, as quickly as possible." And then in terms of focusing on consumer, uh, sort of had a, had, a, had a lens on how are we as, as individuals behaving, and I always thought that was funny to analyze. So um, growing up, I was using Napster a lot. I was on AOL Instant Messenger um, all the time, and we always talk about, oh, it's so funny. Why did this person put this in their profile, or why did, why did someone put this in their away message? And uh, just kind of thinking about those things from an, uh, uh, from an from an early age, um, that that transcended into when I was in college, spending time on Twitter and with a bunch of startups and just kind of thinking they were cool. When I started at J.P. Morgan, having that uh, interest just personally led me to focusing on consumer companies, uh, consumer internet companies when I was there. That's cool. So from a young age, it seems like you weren't only just interested in trying out these new technologies and spending a lot of time on them, but also noticing how others are actually using these uh, products. When an entrepreneur pitches their product to you, how do you know if there's a real pain point when you're conducting due diligence and that a valuable product? I, I think uh, we try to triangulate uh, with a lot of different data points to 
um, assess product market fit um, and pain. You know, one is just instinct and gut. When we hear the story, when we hear what they're addressing, we, we try to think for ourselves how big of a pain point does that um, feel like and does that align with other data points we're seeing in terms of economic trends, uh, you know, personal experiences, um, et cetera. Um, and then there's obviously more concrete data points too, um, and it depends on the category within consumer, but you, know, you can look at NPS score, you can look at um, just how sales are doing and how many of them are happening organically. You can think of how many referrals um, a product has. Uh, we could think of it's an app, the engagement, time spent, number of times opened. There's a lot of different data points for whatever a product is. And uh, I think very quickly, you're able to triangulate on how big of a pain point it feels like and how much of that pain is being relieved. So you have two companies in the same space you're looking at. There's similar stages. And so what do you look for to differentiate when neither have a long history of validation tied to financial uh, performance? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think uh, if you're looking at two companies in the same space, um, we're going to really think about uh, three different elements. Um, the first, um, and it, uh, it's all, almost always the first, even when we're dealing with much later stage companies, is the founder. Is it a founder who's thoughtful? Is that founder a good storyteller? Is it someone who's honest? Is it someone who's self-aware and has the ability to evolve? Is it someone who has high integrity? We, you know, those traits I listed off, we, we actually think about each of those traits individually and try to deep, dive deep into understanding if, if the founder has them. Um, I think the second is, um, is, is really a business model. Um, a lot of times there's different ways to um, attack the same and market. You know, you could create Instacart or you could create Blue Apron. And we're going to think about um, just from sort of a theoretical business model perspective, which of those feels like it is the most capital efficient, which has the deepest, widest moats or barriers to entry and is the most differentiated. Um, and, and just generally talk through, hey, how do we think that this business model is going to play out over the next five or 10 years? And the final is obviously traction. You know, if the traction is different. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy to tell, but I think when we're investing, thinking we're going to um, hold uh, or be an investor in that company for seven to 10 years, we typically think more about those former things than the latter thing, because early traction is usually still a fraction of the ultimate scale a company needs to achieve. So we try to look for business physics and also founder qualities that uh, can be enduring. And speaking about founders, experienced founders versus and, and serial entrepreneurs versus first-time founders, what are, what are the kind of barriers uh, do first-time founders in consumer need to meet in your eyes before you consider them? Uh, it, it comes back to those same qualities that we're looking for in founders. You know, we don't say, hey, um, experience is something we're going to put a premium weight on. It's something we consider and it usually dramatically changes our interactions with the founder. But it comes back to storytelling ability, thoughtfulness, aggressiveness, integrity, and self-awareness. And we'll sort of try to think about those different traits and if a person has them. And we'll also look at what they did before founding the company, uh, why, they're, why, why they're founding it, and, and just kind of get a sense from the conversation, how they're asking questions, how willing are they to learn, what are the types of things they're thinking about. So there's a lot of ways that we would assess a founder that uh, would be much more important than you know, a boss you can check on, you know, former founder or previously founded a company, et cetera. That makes a lot of sense. 
I know that round sizes have increased quite dramatically over the past few years with huge funds going into venture capital. And now we have pre-seed micro funds. How has this influenced you as an investor? Yeah, what's happened at the seed stage uh, in particular, I think is amazing and dynamic. You know, I think over the last few years, you know, when I entered venture capital, um, there probably weren't more than 100 seed funds in existence. Um, and then I, I heard a stat a couple of years ago that there were 600 first time funds being raised at the seed stage just in that year alone. So we've seen a, you know, a close to a 10x increase in the number of institutional funds at the seed stage. We've seen a bifurcation, as you mentioned, to, you know, pre, pre-seed, um, seed, maybe mango seed or sort of, you know, a small series A. And then we've also seen valuations increase uh, pretty dramatically from, you know, four pre and five pre back in 2012. So you're, you're seeing a lot of deals getting done at well above uh, 10 pre now. So, you know, a very big shift there as well. Um, what does it what does it mean for me? You know, I'd say that in, in terms of my evolution as an investor, it, it doesn't sort of parallel track the, the market um, exactly as NEA has matured and in investing in seed companies. And as we've thought about what strategy makes sense, we've basically said, hey, Investing in these party rounds, putting in $500,000 in a seed round, you know, it doesn't really feel great on either side. We usually don't have the same conviction as if we were leading around and really working with a company. And as a result, the founders say, hey, I didn't really get a lot from NEA um, after a year. And so, you know, we think that uh, there's always a risk of that. Um, we think we mitigate that risk when we're taking higher conviction bets at the seed stage. So what we've done is we've said, hey, when we invest at the seed stage, we really want to lead the deal, take a significant ownership percentage, and really work with the company. So we treat it just like a Series A investment rather than say, oh, hey, let's throw in a little bit of money and see what happens. Uh, and we think that that aligns us with founders better, um, keeps us more focused, and um, allows us to make a bigger impact. So that's kind of the shift that I've made here at NEA and um, that others here at NEA have made. I think it uh, it's not so much a response to changes in the market as much as it is just an evolution of our investing strategy. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel like it's just different names, but you're still um, you know investing uh, similar amounts, but it's just become different names in terms of pre-seed and seed rather than what would be uh, you know a few years ago just a Series A uh called so totally uh i was at a an event where a founder asked me like hey you know can i call this uh series a1 series a2 or series a and it's like look you know investors are going to understand that really quickly they're going to see the dollars you raised what you did with those dollars and i think we'll be able to make a pretty fair assessment pretty quickly and the names will sort of fade in the background um so but but yeah I, I definitely agree with that sentiment that the names have changed a little bit but similar amounts of risk for similar amounts of uh, amount of capital um have been taking place for you know over, over for decades here in silicon valley right right absolutely uh so how do you feel about cold introductions versus warm introductions when founders reach out to vcs i know this is quite a contentious issue a little bit on twitter yeah you know i i have no uh I have no problem with um, a founder reaching out directly, and um, I do spend a lot of time on Twitter. And I think you know, a DM there or where you start a conversation based on comment I made, et cetera, is always well received. Um, especially if the founder 
has put some thought into why they're reaching out to me specifically. If they look at a company I've invested in or something I've written and say, hey, that really uh, resonates with what I'm trying to build. Uh, it would be great to have a conversation uh, with someone who's, who's thoughtful like that. So I've got no problem with it. Um, but to be honest, uh, at the same time, if I look at the investments I've been involved with, um, very few have come through those, uh, very, very few that we've ended up investing in have come through those channels. And I think the reason why is because most founders who are successful build up a great advisory network for themselves to learn what it takes to be a founder. And usually those advisory networks uh, would advise them to approach venture capitalists in a certain way. So um, it's not that um, we won't consider uh, 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 cold intros, but most people who have set up them set themselves up for success learn that a warm intro is helpful in being successful which is i think part of the reason or it's a compounding effect to why you see warm intros resulting in investments so frequently if i had to give one piece of advice to founders when they're starting it's to create an advisory board of themselves for of five other uh, venture-backed founders i think what we see a lot is that they'll find a business school professor or someone who's successful in business that they know, but they don't, those, those people are advising them a certain way and are well-intentioned, but don't really understand the full Silicon Valley playbook. And if you get um, five founders to believe in you, usually they, they, they will help connect you to the right people. They'll advise you the right way. And as part of that, they'll advise you on how to fundraise successfully. So I think that's where this sort of correlation comes into play. Right. That, that, that's actually great advice. Uh, so I imagine also that time allocation across your portfolio is probably rather difficult since we all have a limited amount of time. So do you spend, do you tend to spend more of your time focused on uh, the startups that is receiving traction uh, that, you know, are deemed quote unquote, maybe the winners um, or those that are uh, more struggling um, and need and maybe need further uh, greater help in your in your uh, portfolio? We spend a lot of time with both, um, honestly. Um, I think uh, the ebbs and flows of how much time we engage is usually not directly correlated with how the company is performing. A lot of times there are specific things we can help with, whether it's a hire or a business model shift um, or you know helping set a financial budget for a year. And so a lot of the ebbs and flows will, will correlate with that. And you know, I'm early enough in my career um, where um, I'm still um, spending a lot of time with um, all the companies that I'm, I'm on the board of. And um, I think it's going to be a while until, you know, I've got um, so many board seats that I have to uh, less than generous with my time to some of our, my companies. So uh, I haven't personally uh, run into the, the, that challenge of time allocation um, as much. And I try to sort of figure out a cadence with all my companies that the, the founders are happy with. But it's obviously something you got to you got to manage and think about. And what's one thing that you would change about venture capital? There's a bunch of things that um, I would change. It's a really interesting question. You know, from a uh, a diversity angle, I, I do think that venture capital firms uh, would benefit from being much more diverse. And um, I think that with diversity, um, a lot of the 
you know, processes that get calcified when the firm could change very organically. Um, and when I mean diversity, I think, uh, I think there's been a real focus on increasing gender diversity in firms, but I think we also have a need to increase um, minority representation and the representation of people who come from different economic backgrounds. And all those things are um, really important. You know, I think uh, both, both founders and investors can feel a little bit burned um, in transactional conversations where you're sitting aside across from the table and, you, you know, uh, I think both founders and investors can feel like the other person only has like dollar signs in their eyes. And I think the more that, you know, we're able to be curated about the conversations we have and that there's mutual respect on both sides, I think the healthier the ecosystem is. And so those are, those are a couple of things that come to mind. I think those are some great points and certainly are some things that the venture capital world has been heavily criticized for. Now, I know you've been part of some of the more high profile D2C investments. How do you think about D2C in these current times with the rising customer acquisition costs through online channels? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that's the challenge that every D2C investor um, deals with. Um, I think the reality is that you know, almost every consumer brand needs to be reinvented for millennial and Gen Z values. Um, and so I think we will see that happen. And any new brand that arises is very likely to start internet first. I think it's just logical to um, have that level of market exposure um, versus, you know, starting in a retail store. So I, I think uh, a lot of money and successful companies are going to be created, but I think understanding the risk reward of uh, the category specifically, you know, I think the way that people think about financing these companies will, will change a bit. So, uh, you know, billion dollar valuation because uh, we saw really quick growth, probably not the right uh, sort of um, framework for thinking about um, how to invest in these companies, given how we know that they scale. Um, but I, I do think the category will be successful and there'll be a lot of winners for a long time. Uh, and I, I know one of the buzzwords is online and offline uh, developing. Do you think that digitally native brands are going to get offline and make stores more quickly than we've seen in the past? Uh, absolutely. I think if you look at a lot of the leading DTC brands, you know, many of them which were now started six or seven years ago, I think they're moving aggressively into retail and a par partially because um, marketing online gets to be so expensive, they see the return on the uh, investment of creating retail stores to be just as high, if not higher, um, attracting new customer and increase awareness, which may convert online as well. So I think that's going to be come proven strategy uh, very quickly. And we're going to see that proliferate across many brands over the next three or four years. Cool. What trends in consumer are you most excited and focused on? Uh, so we've been thinking a lot about, um, uh, about Gen Z and how behaviors in Gen Z um, are different from millennials. We've been doing primary research, spending time in TikTok, Visco, and a number of apps to just try to understand what people are talking about, thinking about. Uh, we were, we're also doing interviews with teenagers in high school to just get a sense of what their values are and how those might differ from the values of the generation beforehand. And, you know, I think you do see um, a much more activist uh, mentality amongst uh, Gen Z versus the millennial individual. And I, that's uh, being reflected already in the types of companies and products that they support. You're also seeing, and I think this is the most interesting trend, much higher skepticism of traditional education 
and a much uh, deeper inclination to do things that are entrepreneurial early on um, and uh, and also more creative. And I think as those behaviors manifest themselves, very big uh, institutions with a lot of economic power behind them, like uh, traditional college, um, et cetera, I think is going to give way to lots of varied forms of people developing themselves and they'll develop in very different ways. So I think we're going to see industries we've never thought of before, uh, patterns of success that are extremely different in the past. And I think a lot of new, very big companies are going to be created in response to how behaviorally uh, different Gen Z is from the generations before. Now for Gen Z in this do-it-yourself entrepreneurial spirit that seems like you're, you're, you're alluding to in terms of like, in, in terms of education, do you think that that part of uh, the behavior was caused by, you know, the past uh, 10 years or so, the economy has performed so well? You know, that's, a, that's actually an interesting thought. And there's probably some truth to that. Um, and so I would sort of say there are probably three factors that um, are, are all incorporated. The first is um, most Gen Z children grew up um, uh, with parents who were recovering from the economic crisis of 09. So uh, you look at um, a lot of people who feel like they were failed by traditional in America, I think there's reasons for Gen Z to be skeptical. And then I think the second is, you know, the student debt crisis is a very real thing. And the amount of debt that people um, have on their ba personal balance sheets leaving college is significantly higher than 10 years ago, while real wages have really stayed the same. So the value prop for college is just not nearly as strong as it was a decade ago. Um, and, it's, and it's really quite dramatic. And then I think the third thing is, to your point, there are lots of success cases of entrepreneurs over the last decade. Um, and, uh, and I think that's become a more prevalent and common part of our culture than it was for a generation prior. And so I think it's really kind of the, the complex of those three um, secular shifts that um, I think uh, are impacting what I think is gonna be a highly entrepreneurial generation. That makes a lot of sense. What's one of your favorite books that's impacted you both personally and professionally? My, my favorite business book is, um, is The Outsiders. Um, it's written by William Thorndike, and essentially it's um, a, an assessment of um, a number of companies who dramatically performed in public markets um, over the last few decades. And the author draws some um, conclusions about unique traits that those individuals have uh, that, uh, that most other CEOs didn't. And I think the key takeaway of the book is that the best CEOs really think about their business from a capital allocation perspective. Um, and I think it's something that is really, really important for uh, our founders to be great stewards of capital. Um, and uh, and uh, it's really powerfully written to read the, through these case studies and see these ties drawn between these very different companies um, that draws the same conclusion about um, about what made them so successful. And I think it's a really big shift from the way that particularly venture-backed tech founders think um, because it, it does come from this sort of capital allocation perspective rather than sort of a product market perspective. So I think it can really help build a lens for, um, for founders. And the second book um, that sort of I, I would personally um, 
uh, recommend that doesn't have as much to do with business, but certainly there's overlap, is 10% Happier by uh, by Dan Harris, which is uh, basically a book about Dan's personal experience building a meditation practice. And uh, I've been meditating now for six years. It's I've had it's had a dramatic impact on on me, and I, I think that one of the challenges with starting a meditation practice is that most of the sources that teach you about it um, feel very old school or very ritualized and just harder for, you know, um, a Silicon Valley professional to connect with. Whereas um, 10% Happier is written by a hard charging, ambitious journalist and he puts the language of meditation into a prose and a mentality that is very relatable for the Silicon Valley professional. So I think it's a great, easy read that, that I would strongly recommend. That's brilliant. I will definitely have to check both those out. Um, what's one company that you've either invested in or worked with that you're proud of? Yeah, I just announced our investment in Stockwell last week, which is computer vision enabled retail store, which its first format looks somewhat like a, a vending machine. What I love about the investment is that we really try to think through what the future of commerce looks like. And we really try to think about what would be defensible um, and over time and get stronger with time rather than weaker with time as we see with a lot of consumer companies. And when we thought about the technology differentiation, their ability to build a density of distributed stores, the ability for them to personalize those stores and how they've leveraged um, very modern computer vision technology to create a new service. Um, it really felt like something that was special and quite brilliant. and been a real privilege to work with Paul and Ash on it. That's awesome. Uh, and what's one company that you should have invested in but didn't? <clears throat> oh, I've got <laughs> I've got too many. Looking back, uh, I, I did get very close uh, to the founders of Allbirds at the Series A stage, and you know, not only did the company do phenomenally well, but um, I think Joe and Tim are uh, just phenomenal people that um, I would love working with. Um, and uh, and so. You know, you always regret missing out on, you know, financial opportunity, but I think the best part of this job is to share the journey with amazing people. And uh, those are two people I, I really admire and would have loved to have worked with uh, much more closely. Yeah. I mean, you know, even though you weren't investors, it must still be amazing to watch how successful Allbirds has become. Well, Amit, thanks so much again for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your insights. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And there you have it. It was so great having Amit on our show and share his stories and how he sees the world and opportunities that he sees in early stage consumer. If you want to follow Amit on Twitter, where he tweets a bunch about consumer trends, entrepreneurship, and VC, his Twitter handle is Amit Mukherjee. That's A-M-I-T-M-U-K-H-E-R-J-E-E. -E. That will also be in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, which since you're still listening, hopefully you have, we would love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast app. If you have any suggestions on how we can make the podcast better, feel free to send me a DM on Twitter at Mike Gelb. That's M-I-K-E-G-E-L-B. If you want to follow along behind the scenes, you can also follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. You are also welcome to check out www theconsumervc.com where you can find all episodes. Thank you again and until next time.